You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. All right, so I am not a gardener or a planter or can remotely do anything outside, uh, pretty much. But I genuinely love the idea of it. And I partially love the idea of it because I love the elements of the created world and the beauty and the wonder of of Um, creation, but I actually think I love it because there are so many wonderful and majestic and awe-inspiring parts of creation that all take one singular thing, and that is that they all take time. Each one of them takes time. And in high school, I had the chance to go out to California and visit the Redwood Forest, Uh, and if you've never had a chance to get out there, it is quite the sight to behold But what is so striking and so bizarre is not that the redwood forest or the redwood trees stand, I think, around 125 yards tall, um, or that a family of five can barely fit their pinkies around it, holding it together, but rather that a thing that large starts with a seed that I could fit on my finger. Uh, and it takes sunlight, and it takes water, and it takes the right temperature, and the right conditions, and the right soil, but it also just takes so much time. And for someone who plants a redwood tree, they are never going to actually experience the height of its beauty. And there is so much wonder in a redwood tree, and there's also so much waiting. And there is so much beauty in a redwood tree, And there is so much waiting. And that brings us to Advent. There are the major traditional themes of Advent. Hope, peace, joy, love. But I think there's a theme under those themes in our human condition. And the one that scripture is littered with. And that is the theme of waiting. And as much as we look back at this time of year for the first Advent, the birth of Jesus, really what we are doing now is being reminded of the second Advent. We are not waiting for the child to come. We are waiting for the king to rule. God has shown up. Now we're just waiting for no more sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. We know the curse has been defeated, Now we're just waiting on it to be eradicated. Evil has an end date, but it hasn't arrived yet. Our teaching text is about Simeon, and to understand where we're going, we need some historical context. So Israel, uh, if you know the story in the Old Testament, they had kings. Specifically, they had one great king named David. uh, And this was where the people of Israel flourished. Uh, They were a broken people, but they were God's broken people. Uh, They had established peace. They were victorious over empires. Uh, There was just great human flourishing. Uh, But David would die, and more kings would take over, and throughout the years, Israel would lose sight of Yahweh, and they would lose sight of his faithfulness, and they would continue over and over and over again to turn to idolatry. And ultimately, Yahweh would give them over to the nations of the world, where they were no longer an autonomous nation, but were subservient to other powers, living under the rule of another empire. And we get some glimpse of this in the Old Testament, because we have prophets like Jeremiah, who are calling the people back to God um, while they are under Babylonian rule. 
But there is a marker in the scripture, and it is defined by a single piece of paper. It is between Malachi and Matthew. And that one sheet of paper represents 400 years of time. God is literally silent. Silent. Prophetic silence. After speaking through his prophets for so many years and through his kings for so many years, and the inter, what is called the intertestamental period where God goes silent. And after the Babylonian takeover, the Persians take over. And then under the Persian Empire, the Jews actually enter back into the Promised Land. But then the Persians are taken over by the Greeks. And your history tells you that that's Alexander the Great, who was the great emperor. Um, but then he dies, and so the Greek Empire dies with it. And it's split up into four regions. And eventually Israel is caught between a land in the south of Egypt and a land of the north in Assyria. And eventually a wicked general in the north called Antiochus IV of Epiphanes makes owning the Torah a capital crime, makes sacrifices in the temple a capital crime, um, and imposes punishments on things like observing the Sabbath. And so a nasty civil war explodes, and over time the Jewish people actually become strong enough and defeat Antiochus. And for the first time in 500 years, the Jews have a right to reestablish the Davidic kingship where the humans in Israel were flourishing. But they don't do that. And about a century later, in 63 BC, the Romans take over. And the people come under the Roman Empire. And in this empire, there are regional and local leaders. And one of those is Herod, which you all know, who is not really a leader, but he's more of a puppet. And he has enough power to do damage, but not really enough power to command allegiance. And so Herod builds a temple where the Jews would come and worship, and then enter Simeon, who was a righteous and devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel. So hundreds of years of violence, hundreds of years of silence, and an old gray-haired man shows up day in and day out to the temple over and over again, longing for his people to be free. And there's all these promises in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. All these promises in the Old Testament about the freedom of Israel. And Simeon is well acquainted with that. And the text actually says, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Simeon is not only longing for the renewal of Israel, he has been promised to see the renewer of Israel. So Simeon is out here holding on to something that he knows through the Old Testament scriptures and that the Spirit of God has actually revealed to him. And yet he's growing old near death and he still is just waiting. Scholars call Simeon and those like him the faithful remnant. They were the ones who worshipped Yahweh, who were devoted and devout, small, small minority of the Jewish people, steadfast and faithful through the long centuries of silence and agony. It is a long and desperate waiting. And I imagine, this is probably me reading a bit into the text, but I imagine that it is a waiting that teeters with trust and can be weighed down in pain. Sometimes our familiarity with the Scripture 
makes people in the scripture mere figures in history. But let's just consider Simeon for a moment. He's a noble man. He knows the Torah. He is familiar, familiar with the prophets and he knows the prophecies. And God has spoken to Simeon a, prof, a promise that he will see the anointed one, the Messiah. Like he is literally waiting on Isaiah 49, 13 to happen, which says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has consoled his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. And he is waiting on Isaiah 52, 9 to pop. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the sold his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. So Simeon, devout man, knows the promises of God. But I imagine the intellectual knowing and the experiential living don't always coincide. I imagine there is some doubt sprinkled into this promise God has given him. Simeon is old in age. He has showed up for a long time repeatedly to the temple, waiting. He's just waiting. And Simeon's story is the story of humanity. I mean, I, I look around this room and I, I just think we're, we're probably not that different. I think a lot of you, just knowing many of your stories, can relate to this. You are in the in-betweenness of something. You're waiting. And a lot of you are waiting with pain. You're waiting on a new job or a different job. You're waiting on a spouse. You're waiting on a child. You're waiting on parents who don't seem to get it. You're waiting for that friend to get their act together. You're waiting to stop being the subject of ridicule at work. You're waiting on the chronic pain to quit. You're waiting on the diagnosis. You're waiting on the treatment. You're waiting for the sin or the temptation or the addiction to just kind of quit. Or you're just waiting for the low-grade hum of noise that sort of rumbles in your spirit to quiet down. You're waiting. You're hoping that there is an end to this. And you're holding on, you're holding on to some type of hope. You, you feel like you know the scriptures, you know the Bible, and yet you're just waiting. And you said, but there is a sense of weariness in waiting. And I just want to say, I want us to be a church where waiting and questions and pain and doubt are welcome. Because we're all in process. The majority of the questions that have been asked of me the last three years around sorrow, pain, death, loss, suffering can be summed up very easily and theologically by the fall. And also very honestly and a lot more difficult in three words. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why children get cancer. I don't know why tsunamis happen. I don't know how or why or how 
a virus. <laughs> a clump of cells turns into a virus that turns into an epidemic, that turns into a global pandemic that wrecks our world. I can explain it very easily theologically, but I have a much more difficult time getting it from up here to right here. I believe that Jesus is big enough and strong enough to carry the pain and the waiting and the honesty of our questions. If he is not, then he cannot be trusted. He is not a God worthy to be worshiped and we are wasting our time, so let's go home because this is a really bad hobby. And this doesn't mean that all the answers will land easy, nor does it mean that they will always be simple. And I think our temptation is that we want things neat and tidy and in a box that we can receive, open up, and move on. But I actually believe that's what we want at the the surface. I think what we really want, more than answers, actually, and what we really need more than answers, is the sheer presence of God himself. We want to know that God is near to us, has not left us, and will not leave us. Andrew Peterson is a, my, my favorite songwriter, actually. Um, and he has this song called The Silence of God, which is a like prophetic song in so many ways. But here is what the last stanza says. Doesn't say that. There is a statue of Jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky, all quiet and cold. And he's kneeling in the garden, as silent as a stone. And all his friends are sleeping, and he's weeping all alone. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not. In holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. God's silence does not imply God's absence. God's silence does not imply God's absence. And I don't want to be curt here, because the reality is there are many, many seasons and many months and many years in life where the silence of God is quite deafening. And life is dark, and it is cold, and it's uncertain, and the all-encompassing emotion (laughs) and the thought and the felt reality that supersedes everything else about our experience of God is doubt. It's doubt. Which is why the largest book in the Bible is the Psalms. The Psalms are not a bunch of white pages to be read. 
they're, they're literally words given to us to express our felt experience of humanity and reality. You don't read the Psalms. You actually don't even really study the Psalms. You pray the Psalms. You pray the Psalms. They are our words when we don't have words. They give articulation and vocabulary and language to our felt experience. We actually don't derive our theology from Psalms because that actually will probably lead us to a very poor theology. The Psalms are an emotive book, a book about how are we experiencing God as opposed to who God is in and of himself. Which leads us to a place of honesty, and God desires our honesty. There are two instances in the scripture that do not ease our pain, I don't believe, but they empathize with our feeling of the silence of God. And the first is John the Baptist. Jesus calls him the greatest man to ever live, the greatest man to ever walk the earth. And he is in the dungeon of Herod's prison. And the forerunner who was prophesying that God was going to come, who was going to, who reoriented his entire life and became an outcast from his social circles, writes a letter to Jesus where he pretty much says, yeah, yeah, here I am. But are you actually the Christ? Are you it? Like, I know what I said. I know what I preached. I know that I'm sitting here in a cell because of all those things. And I'm about to have my head severed on a silver platter by the man that you just called a fox. So I got to know, are you the one? Then we get Jesus himself, first in the garden where he is crying out so much that his sweat turns from clear to red because his sweat glands pop into blood, asking, Father, if there is any other way, please let this cup pass from me. And there wasn't. And as he hangs on a cross with the vilest of the world, there is no vocabulary for the deepest humiliation and suffering you have ever experienced. And so what does he do? He cries out Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was subject to pain and suffering. He does not bypass it and he does not recuse himself from it. He actually goes through it, and he he asks the question that all of us will ask or have asked, which is, does God the Father really care? Does he care? Advent is about the announcement of God's arrival into the world, but it is also simultaneously glorious and grievous reminder that God subjected himself to the worst of the world. In Advent, we celebrate God's arrival in humble form, but we desperately long for God's return in triumphant form. And so we wait, sometimes in doubt, sometimes in faith, but rarely ever in certainty, 
Which, by the way, doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is the opposite of certainty. And who among us is certain about the majority of things in their life? We are certain about things like gravity. I am certain that if I jumped off this building, I would fall down. 95% of the other things are about belief. And in belief, we doubt. So we press forward, and then we draw back. And then we go on, and then we have questions. And then we're super excited, and then we're deeply challenged. That's the actual human experience. And in the believing and in the doubting, we wait. The scripture is full of people waiting on God to show up. And our challenge is confusing waiting on God with waiting on something else. Beth Moore says it like this. Scripture doesn't say that those who wait will renew their strength. Nothing is more exhausting than waiting. It says those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. We tend to hear trust God while you wait on the thing and miss the key point, which is waiting on God. If you wait on the Lord, you will always, without fail, get what you're waiting on, the Lord himself. Waiting is actively looking for God at work. It is not a supremely passive exercise where we sit back and hope that maybe the chips will fall. That's fortunate for us. Very critical distinction. Waiting is not wishing. Waiting is not wishing. Wishing is what we do with genies. The scripture describes waiting as a watchman. Meaning there is an expectation that God is working, that God will show up on the horizon, that you are not merely watching for the thing you are waiting on, but you are watching for God himself. There is a... Our, our charismatic brothers and sisters call it contending, where you recite over and over and over again back to God the things that he has promised. And if you look back at the passage, you see that God is actually the central character in the story. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Like there is an awareness and an expectation and a sensitivity to God that on this seeming, seemingly ordinary day, with this seemingly ordinary couple, with this seemingly ordinary child, besides Mary and a few cohorts, no one knows that this child is God. But there is another ordinary man in Jerusalem who is paying attention to God. Who causes him to arrive at the right place at exactly the right time. And the Holy Spirit within him says, there she is and there he is. Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What Simon, Simeon longed for, he is now experiencing. What he was banking on, he now knows. Not with his head, but with his hands. He is holding him. In this way, his faith has now become sight. And he borrows language from the Old Testament because he knows that it's not just for him, but that he has come for a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, meaning every non-Jewish person, and for glory to your people Israel. There is a waiting that has been realized, and there is also a waiting that is still here. So, the arrival of Jesus shows us that God continues to invite the least suspecting people into the story. Some of you are probably wondering why I picked a small paragraph about an unknown man with a little description in the middle of the Christmas season to walk through Advent. And that is precisely why. That God uses simple people to write his story and that God continues to blow our preconceived notions out of the water of who he is and surprises us by invites to the table. Simeon has four sentences about him in an old biography of Jesus. God shows us he is committed to the unimpressive and unimportant. Simeon is a footnote in the story about God, but he's in the story. He's in the story. Here's why I love the story, because God's arrival onto our planet dignifies us and reminds us that we're not that important. Like, who are you made in the image of God, full glory? And who are you not that big of a deal? Who are you someone who was fashioned in his hands? And who are you a flawed, broken, sinful person who actually needs the blood of God himself? Who are you no one in history has your DNA, your personality, your makeup? And who are you? Nobody. You're a nobody. And I'm a nobody. There's 7 billion people in the world right now. In the history of the world, we don't even register. The arrival of Jesus dignifies us and it humbles us. It dignifies us because, look, he shows up in a teen mom's womb, makes himself known to sheep herders and old men like Simeon and old women like Anna who keep showing up to the sanctuary because they have the audacity to believe that God hears them. And he does. What a dignifying thought. God hears your prayer. He knows, actually, he knows that you are waiting on him. This is humbling and freeing. You, you could never be more important than you are right now. And you have nothing to bring to God that is impressive. The arrival of Jesus humbles us because it reminds us that we are the only creatures on planet earth that are made in his image. And we have run so far away from him that he has to come down to earth and die for us. Which brings me to the, the last thing. <laughs> it is not something we want to hear during Advent. The arrival of Jesus shows us that God will expose us in the story. Look down the closing section. It says, 
And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I wonder what Mary is thinking at that point. Like this man, who presumably she does not know, has just told her that her child is going to pierce her soul. It's got to sting. It's got to sting. Which, which he actually does. If you remember the scene where um, the, the, the question is asked to Jesus, who are your mother and your brothers? And Jesus says, whoever does the will of the one who sent me is my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And I imagine Mary hearing that and thinking, Ugh, the family of God, bigger than even me. Jesus does not come to pacify us. He comes to recreate us. He came to give us our royalty back, not by agreeing with everything we do, think, or desire. Actually, the opposite. His coming is an affront to most things we think and desire. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, Jesus, the word made flesh, God with skin on, he is sharper than any two-edged sword. He will pierce us. If we do not feel the tension of following Jesus in our flesh, then we are probably following a Jesus of our own imagination. Jesus himself says, and what I think is probably one of the more controversial statements that he makes in Matthew 10, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I come not to bring peace, but a sword. He does not come to earth flippantly. He comes intentionally with purpose to upend the war for the human heart that is raging against it by the world and the flesh and the devil. And in the apex of his life, in the great reversal that no one could have seen coming, he defeats the sword of the world by being struck by it. He will pierce us. He will pierce you. But the good news is that he will do so by becoming pierced for us. It is not by his arrival that we are healed. It is actually by his wounds. He doesn't come to conquer with killing, but with dying. It is not by sheer willpower we are saved. It is by mercy. And our tendency is sometimes to lean toward the fact that we want the world to be made right, and we do and should and pray to that end. And I hope, I hope, I hope you have heard my heart in North Knoxville as it is in heaven. That is our prayer. That is this church's prayer. I want the kingdom of God to come in full. There are so many things in our world that grieve me, right? Abuse grieves me. Divorce grieves me. The porn industry grieves me. The brokenness of mental and physical health grieve me. Pride and objectification and envy all grieve me. The problem is most of those things grieve the world too. And maybe not perfectly, but honestly, our culture wants the kingdom, 
They want the kingdom. They want wars to cease and peace and justice to reign. They hate death as much as we do. The problem is the king that they don't want. And the incarnation shows us that it is us too who have a problem with the king. We say we are longing for the king, but would we have housed the young, pregnant, teenage mom holding God in her womb? God shows how we engage the least of these is how we engage him. We say that we are longing for the king, but how offended would we be if God showed up on the scene and invited our worst enemies to our kitchen table? And God shows us the marker of Christianity is actually enemy love. We are longing for the king, but it is, is it the actual, is it the same king and the same kingdom who got blistered to pieces by the state and then went on to say, Father, forgive them for their ignorance. In his seminal work, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson tells a story of Walter McMillan, a man sentenced to death row by a bounty of falsified evidence and a conspiracy to cover it up. And after sitting on death row for six years, Stevenson was able to gather the coerced testimonies against him and bring them against the state in a case that would ultimately free McMillan, who was able to walk out of jail with the same sentence that he walked in with. But listen to what he says about his experience when he came out. I have suffered pain, agony, loss, fear in degrees that I never imagined possible. I experienced others being executed with the greatest pain and with enormous fear about whether this would happen to me. From my cell, you could smell the stench of burning flesh. The smell of someone you know burning to death is the most painful and nauseating experience on this earth. And in 2013, at Walter's funeral, Brian Stevenson spoke at it. And this is how Stevenson describes Walter McMillan, the man. I told those gathered in the church that Walter had taught me that mercy is just when it is rooted in hopefulness and freely given. Mercy is most empowering, liberating, and transformative when it is directed at the undeserving. The people who haven't earned it, who haven't even sought it, are the most meaningful recipients of our compassion. Mercy is the most empowering and most liberating when it is directed at the undeserving. This is a shadow of the mercy of God. We the undeserving, he the willing giver. We those who have spurned it, Jesus the one who keeps coming back. We're the prodigal kids who have wasted the inheritance. He is the father who is running to the field to greet us. We are standing in the courtroom and it is God himself who steps up to the bench and says, wait, I will take it. All of it. And I, not only will I take it, but I will give them all of my credentials. It is God for us. It is God with us. It is God in us. 
We need the suffering servant before we need the warrior king. We need the God, the man, who heals the world by his wounds and is going to use our wounds to tell of the wounded healer. We're in a story of hope and resurrection that comes through pain and suffering, and it comes today in unexpected places, unexpected people. And there's waiting. There's still waiting. Advent is the reminder that God visited our planet and is going to redeem our pain and crush our sin and resurrect our world. That's the story. That's the story. So the next three, four weeks, don't, I, I feel like the, the challenge for, for us is not that familiarity breeds contempt, it's that familiarity breeds apathy. We just become apathetic. Let mercy and wonder capture you in the waiting God is at work in this church in the midst of some deep pain because that's where he actually does his best work. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your mercy and we open-handedly receive it. Praise you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy. Now you have come not just to be among us or to be one of us, but to be the one for us. God, we need you. And we trust you, even in the waiting. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? The maker of heaven and earth who has come for us. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Would you all stand as we continue worshiping? Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.